Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and I want to jump right in today because I want to begin with humanity's most dastardly torture device that we've ever come up with. That is the group project. Amen. Amen. Can I get an amen? amen? I hated these in school. Mostly because as someone who thought getting a B would be the literal death of me, they were perfectly designed to ruin my life. Because as you might imagine, I was always the person who ended up doing all the work. Anyone else experienced this before? You see, everyone's experienced that. And if you haven't, that's because you are the deadbeat who created it for other people. Charlie Jaquette. There's some honesty. I like that. However, despite my distaste, I actually want to share about the one time that I was a deadbeat in a group project. Let me cast the scene for you. It was high school, and our history teacher made the very poor choice of letting us pick our history fair groups, which, of course, meant that I ended up in a group with all of my friends, right? And you might think this would inspire better work, but alas... It actually just freed me from the crippling fear of letting down strangers, making me free and confident that my friends would get over it if I did nothing, because that's how high schooler brains work. Am I right? I'm like, I, don't, I, I know these people. I can ruin their day. <laughs> They'll be fine. For whatever reason, I decided to be the worst group partner of all time. I still remember our first meeting, which I skipped due to family stuff, when in reality, I just went to see this cinematic masterpiece called Prime Evil. Anyone else see this? this? This masterpiece of 2000 cinema? No? No one else caught Prime Evil? Okay, well, that's cool. For those who missed this banger, it's about a Nile crocodile who develops a taste for human flesh because he's around war or something. I don't know. It's an incredibly stupid movie, guys. <laughs> One that includes a scene I'll never forget where Orlando Jones, 90s icon Orlando Jones, is chased through the African savannah by literally the worst CGI crocodile I have ever seen in my entire life. It does this as it runs. You can't really see it in the still frame, but its legs are flying. It's ridiculous, y'all. Great movie. Highly recommend it. Go check that out. It's probably, I don't know, lost in time. I digress. I digress. The point is I was dead weight, making everything harder on everyone else, which in hindsight is a real bummer, because beyond the fact that I was just being obnoxious, um, I also missed out on getting to feel a part of what ended up actually being a really cool thing that our group made. We ended up making this documentary on fear and loathing in Las Vegas and how it was a lens to understand the death of the hippie movement. Yeah, awesome. Guess who doesn't get to claim to be a part of that? <laughs> At least not with any self-honesty. And we've all been there where we turn something that could be great into just a miserable experience by having terrible attitude, bad behavior, and just refusing to take part. Anyone else? It's the worst, isn't it? And yet, despite the fact that we all hate this, how often do we do this with God without blinking an eye? And I want to explain to you what I mean by that. You see, the biblical story is not about God doing all the work. It's about God restoring his world by partnering with us, his image bearers, humans who through relationship with him 
are transformed back into what we are intended to be back in Genesis, co-creators who work alongside him to advance his purposes of new creation, liberation, and healing in his good world. That's the plot. And yet, how often does our theology and our practice of faith seemingly devolve into us just waiting upon God to do everything? Posting on Facebook thoughts and prayers rather than showing up to let God work through us to tangibly help our neighbors, to tangibly help the people that we are giving our thoughts and prayers. Is anyone else with me? And this is an incredibly hard truth because what I'm really getting at is this constant universal struggle to find the correct balance between faith on one hand and action on the other. Where ideally, in the biblical worldview, what we're called to do is neither to think that we build God's kingdom by ourselves, nor that it's all about God doing everything for us. But rather, us finding this balance where each of us, in faith, lays ourselves down so that God can actively work through us as willing partners in this great group project of restoring his good world. Are you all tracking with me on this? And I bring this up because today we get to explore what happens when we get partnering with God hilariously wrong. And that's because that's going to be center frame in week four of our series, Nope, which is our series covering the book of Jonah, this satire about a runaway prophet that's loaded with stereotyped characters who are designed to shatter our expectations. Jonah, God's prophet, is by far the worst character in the story. Well, everyone that we presume to be villains ends up being saints. And it's been funny so far, right? Anyone else think this book has been hilarious? It's one of my favorites. But we also have to remember that what Jonah is not trying to do is simply convey facts that we are just supposed to know. Rather, as I've said over and over again, as a satire, Jonah's intentionally designed to sneak behind our defenses, to get us laughing, before revealing that its characters are these exaggerated versions of us. Because it, like all good satire, wants to be a what? A mirror. This mirror that God wants to use to reveal where we've become like Jonah, where we have let humanity's worst tendencies fester in us as the people of God, all for the purpose of God, by his grace, getting the Jonah out of us. That's the goal. And that's what we're going to continue exploring today. But before we do, let's do what we've been doing. Let's recap. Let's remember, God sent Jonah to deliver a message to Nineveh, but Jonah said, nope. Why? Because he hates the Ninevites, and he does not want to help God's grace reach them. So Jonah fled by boat until God sent this storm, but instead of listening to God, Jonah doubled down which got him hurled into the sea. However, just as Jonah hit rock bottom, God sent something. What was it? A big fish. No one said a whale. I am so proud of you guys. Way to go. I mean, a more accurate thing to say would be like this literalized version of a metaphor from the prophetic imagination about Israel's advance into exile. But you guys, big fish will work. We can stick with that. Next time. You'll get it right next time. God sent this big fish, right? And it swallowed Jonah up, and we're supposed to think that he's dead, but then miraculously, paradoxically, 
God turns this vehicle of Jonah's demise into a vehicle of God's grace for Jonah, leading him to surrender and ultimately reorienting him back to the purpose of his life, answering God's calling. Thus, last week, uh, we finished with Jonah being vomited out of this great sea creature, finally headed for Nineveh. And that is where we're going to pick up today in Jonah chapter 3. We begin in verse 1. Then the Lord of the word came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So first, the author begins by reminding us that we've actually been on this narrative detour for a while. Because what the book of Jonah was supposed to be about was God's grace reaching Nineveh until Jonah made the entire story about himself for a while and it veered off course into this strange story about God and his rebellious prophet, right? But now we're back on track. Amen. Woo, go Jonah. Now, let's recall. What was the message that God wanted delivered through Jonah? If we go all the way back to verse one of this book, we find it as such. Go and preach against Nineveh because it's wickedness has come before me, which I don't know about you, for me that has major wrathful God vibes, right? But we need to remember what Nineveh represents in the story. Remember, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the biggest, baddest empire on earth, one that thrived by savagely pillaging weaker countries. If you recall, they were big fans of skinning and impaling enemies alive. Good dudes. Fun hang, right? And what role did Assyria play in Israel's story? Who remembers? Conquered that. There you go. They were responsible for the conquest, destruction, and exile of Israel's northern kingdom. All to say, biblically, understand that Nineveh represents something in the prophetic imagination. Nineveh represents how injustice and violence aren't like natural disasters. No, they are things that are created and perpetuated by us, right? It's not like, oh my gosh, how did this injustice come into being? Oh, who did that? There must have been a cyclone. No, these things are created by human beings, right? They're perpetuated by human beings. And thus what Nineveh represents in the biblical story is the epitome of what happens when such human evil gets embedded within a culture and a society's way of existing in the world. All to say, what you need to understand is that for an Israelite reader, this message, though scary, is actually great news. Because what it means is that God has finally sent a prophet to confront Assyria's evil, injustice, oppression, violence, destruction, that they've carried out in God's world. It's finally God telling them to stop their evil ways. And does Jonah obey this time? Yes, he does. See, it's been no every other week, (laughs) but I got you this time. He does. Jonah finally obeys. He finally goes to Nineveh. But then the author shares this factoid, which is that Nineveh takes three days to walk across which is hyperbole, understand, ancient cities weren't that big. This is effectively the author's way of saying Nineveh was the biggest city ever. Very on brand for the book of Jonah so far. But it's also a little bit of satirical foreshadowing because it's Jonah. So Nineveh, three days to walk, got that? Verse four, 
Jonah began by going how many days? One day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days in Nineveh will be overthrown. So let me ask you, does pure faithful Jonah deliver God's message to all of Nineveh as God commanded him? No. Jonah walks for one day and then calls it quits. He's like, job well done. Let's wrap it up, boys. And let's review the content of Jonah's message, because this is quite interesting. First, recall, Jonah's a book of the prophets, and what forms the majority of these prophetic books? Poetry, thank you. Poetry, right? The prophets are primarily formed of chapters upon chapters of poetic sermons containing the detailed content of God's message relayed through that specific prophet, which hasn't appeared thus far in Jonah because he's refused to do his job. And even now, as Jonah technically does his job, do we find chapters of detailed content laying out God's message? No, we find in Hebrew a message from Jonah that contains just five words. And it is literally, literally the worst sermon ever given on God's good earth. Jonah provides a time in 40 days and a warning. Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's all. He's done. Which is odd. Does that seem odd to you people? It is odd because let's consider what Jonah left out that maybe God wanted included in his message to the Ninevites. Does Jonah mention Nineveh's wickedness? No. Does Jonah mention what Nineveh must stop, why, or what they should do instead? No. Does Jonah mention how they'll be overthrown, or more importantly, how they might avoid this fate? No. And finally, the most absurd part, does Jonah mention God? Not even once. So imagine, just imagine, you're a Ninevite, you're going about your day, and this frumpy foreigner you've never seen before waltzes by delivering this five-word warning. Are you taking him seriously? Y'all, I've been to college campuses, I've seen people just like this, and I never once listened to that man, let me tell you. Oh, it's because you're a wicked, broken person, Chris. (laughs) No! No, you wouldn't take this seriously, right? And the author doesn't explicitly explain Jonah's thinking here, but I think the implication's pretty clear considering what we know of Jonah's character. He's trying to tank his prophetic mission. Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to repent and receive God's grace. That's why he ran in the first place. He wants them to be smited, lightning bolt, bam, right? So what's he doing? He's quiet quitting which is a term I actually hate because usually it's used to describe people just doing what they're paid to do. But in this case, I think Jonah's actually doing what quiet quitting is intended to mean. He is walking through Nineveh physically doing that, saying stuff, but just enough to get God to stop hounding him. Giving enough information while at the same time as little as possible so that the Ninevites won't listen, repent, and avoid being overthrown. Y'all, Jonah's being disobedient again, and he's pouting while he does it. Like, fine, I'll go talk to the Ninevites, but I won't like it. Hmm. My toddler behaves better than this. That's my point. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Jonah's the worst. But this leads to what, (laughs) for my money, is by far the funniest section of Jonah yet. We continue in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. So, does Jonah's plan work? No, Jonah. 
No, no, no. These wicked Ninevites, like the pagan sailors previously, are so spiritually attuned, so open, so ready, so willing to change that this is all they need to believe God and repent. The entire city fasts, showing their dependence upon God, and then they adorn sackcloth, which means getting naked and putting on a burlap sack of animal hair. Does that seem comfortable? No, it wasn't supposed to be because it's a dramatic act of contrition and lament for what they had done. So the most wicked city of the most wicked empire hears the worst sermon ever and immediately in the most over-the-top fashion does everything they can to show the sincerity of their remorse and their deep desire to embrace the God of Israel. That's bonkers. And it's also pink sat or peak satire because in contrast, recall, what did the pure faithful prophet Jonah have to undergo to repent even a little bit? Well, let's count. He got caught in the worst storm ever. He was thrown into the sea. He was swallowed and vomited out by a sea monster. And even then, he only repented and changed enough to walk one day and say five words. Wild, right? That's hilarious. And it gets funnier. Verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust or in ashes. So, did Jonah try to reach the king of Nineveh? No, he didn't do that. So without Jonah even trying to reach the king of Nineveh, God's message still finds its way to the royal palace and into the king of Nineveh's ears. And y'all, imagine if you're an Israel leader, Assyria, it's king, good guy or bad guy, the worst guy. Think the U.S. president with a knack for derangement and skinning people alive. The leader of the most violent and powerful and savage empire ever known in your world. And does he like being challenged, yes or no? Big no. So how is he going to respond to Jonah walking around a city talking smack? He's going to get his impaling on, right? And yet, instead... He rises from his throne, and rather than proclaiming judgment upon Jonah, he humbly accepts God's judgment upon himself. <sighs> Leaving his throne, removing his royal robes, and adorning himself in the same sackcloth as the lowest Ninevite citizen, before dousing himself in ashes, which was the ancient symbol of utter remorse. I mean, this is an all-out lament of regret for the injustice and the violence that he, as the king of Nineveh, has perpetuated in God's world. The king divests himself of every symbol possible of his will, his power, his status, lowering himself as low as he can. That's the depth of his repentance. Again, it's bonkers. And it ain't over, verse 7. This is the proclamation the king issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So, not just everyone in Nineveh, but even old McDonald's cow. In this story, 
fasts, adoring sackcloth, and repents better than Jonah ever has in the text. That's comedic gold, (laughs) y'all. These Ninevites and their cows respond better to God's prophet than Israel ever does in the entire Bible. Internalizing God's message before giving up their evil ways and justice and violence, effectively turning over the basis of their society. At this time, to be a Syrian was to be violent. This is crazy. And it's also, get this, a really funny joke that God is playing on the prophet Jonah. You see, in Hebrew, the word translated overthrown can describe a city being destroyed, but it can also describe something being turned over, being transformed so thoroughly that it becomes the opposite of what it used to be. In other words, Jonah's warning comes true, just not in the doomsday way he had intended and hoped. Nineveh does get overturned because and how it responds to God's love and grace with such humility, it is transformed into the opposite of what it used to be in the world. That's funny. God's got a sense of humor, right? He's like, you did it, Jonah. You overturned Nineveh. Who thinks he's happy about that? Next week. But this also highlights something that Jonah's missed and that we'll explore when we dive into Jonah's response to this gaffe upon him next week. It's just this important reminder that God's confrontation with Nineveh was never about judgment for the sake of judgment. God's confrontation with Nineveh was always, always, always about redemptive grace. It was always meant to be an invitation offered to them in love for them to find a new way of life one that's better for themselves, others, and God's world. It was always meant to be a piece of good news, and Jonah just missed that because he hates them so much. Thus, for the second time in this book, the wicked pagans understand what God's about better than his prophet does. And the Ninevites receive what Jonah has received countless times in the story already, which is the radical, transformative, infinite grace of this God poured out on them in love. Y'all, that's beautiful, isn't it? And with that in mind, let's do what we do every week. Let's make Jonah our mirror, because this is a profound section when we sit with it. I think first it reveals two major ways that God's people become roadblocks to rather than co-creators with God in his story. And that's through feeding pride and judgmentalism. Because for Jonah, the Ninevites are just folks he's labeled irredeemable. This group he's judged and written off as hopeless sinners. Too deplorable to ever find redemption in God's story. Which isn't grounded in nothing. The Assyrians were bad dudes who had done horrible things, specifically to Jonah's people. And yet, in this story, in this Hebrew Bible... They get what God's doing, while the man of God, the prophet of God, the standing for God's people misses it entirely. Why? Well, I think it's simple. I think it's simply because Jonas pridefully elevated himself to a throne of judgment that was never meant to be his. 
going about labeling other people's brokenness as worse than themselves, determining that they deserve punishments that are greater than any he would assign to himself, and then just acting accordingly. Because when you're that high up, of course you think it's cool to just start squishing other people like ants. Am I right? And there's no, I mean, it's a posture that leads Jonah to not just miss, but to actively try to prevent what amounts to the most miraculous story of societal healing in the entire Bible. Because he can't accept that God could possibly work through or love his enemies. And there's no way that's happened in church history, right? There's no way that's relatable to us today. Y'all, come on. This is us. In prideful judgmentalism, we get on our throne and we forget our forgiven injustices, how we've fed into and perpetuated broken systems and hate even the idea of our enemies receiving what we've been given freely. And inevitably, in that posture, we become roadblocks to, not conduits of God's grace. We become roadblocks to it, reaching the people who need it most more often than not. That's why Jonah's enemies, not Jonah, get it right because they're the only ones in the story who are willing to humbly surrender their thrones to a God who actually can judge and heal. They're the only ones who recognize that they have no basis to even play that role in the story. We aren't God's arbiters of grace, y'all. That only ever leads us to miss out on or even obstruct what God wants to do through us in his world. And that is a tragedy for God's people every time. But I don't want to bury the lead because despite that warning, what the story is really about, what it's primarily about is the power of God's grace, which we are called to become these conduits of. Here, Jonah highlights once again in the story that faith is inseparable from being transformed into co-creators with God, which as a mirror asks some challenging questions of us. Where do we experience Jonah's disconnect between our faith and that calling? Where are we holding onto our thrones instead of laying them down for use in God's kingdom? Because here's the truth. We all have something, time, talents, treasures, that if we were honest, we would admit we could humbly lay them down for God's kingdom and we simply refuse to. Oh, I'll lay down my time when I'm retired and have nothing else to do. Or maybe how about this? I'll lay down my money when I get enough to never have a financial worry again? Or how about this one? I'll lay down my talents when I've mastered X skill because I don't want to embarrass myself. Simply put, I'll lay myself down for God's kingdom when I and my life are perfect. And y'all, every time we do that, every time we end up waiting forever, never believing that we're ready, doing nothing and giving the bare minimum just to keep God off our backs, And y'all, that misses the plot. When we are in that space, we are missing the plot. Because in this story, God's grace wins even when his people are imperfect conduits. Look at what he does through Jonah. Who here thinks Jonah's a role model of the faith? Not me. And yet look what God does through him, which isn't telling us to be Jonah, to go about pouting because we don't want to get over our hatred for other people. But it is begging us to consider this. If God's grace can reach Nineveh through the worst prophet ever, then just imagine what he can do through someone with even a shred of humility, open-mindedness, and willingness. 
Just imagine what he could do through someone who actually lets God get the Jonah out of them. Just imagine what he could do through us. This God can achieve wonders through imperfect people if we are just willing to, in faith, get off our thrones, lay ourselves down, and let God work through us with what he's already given us. That's the plot. That's the story. That's good news. Am I right? That's the challenge of this text. So as we head into communion, the symbol of God's self-sacrificial love, the time where he laid himself down for us, I want us all to reflect on where we need to hear this part of Jonah. Who are your Ninevites, those you judge irredeemably? And where do you need to hear that God loves them as much as you? More than that, where do you need to hear that they might get God better than you do? Because if God can redeem the Ninevites in his story, by golly, he can redeem the person you hate most in this world too. And you're the only one who doesn't see that. But also, where do you need to put what you've been given into the hands of a God who can judge? who can heal, who can redeem, who can restore this broken world, even through imperfect vessels like us. Because that's good news. Amen? Amen. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Father God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for your world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Amen. We offer good and free bread at all serving areas. We invite you to come, take, and eat communion as you feel led during this next song. The table is open.